All right. Welcome to the second week of the Rocky Mountain Surgery Podcast. This is Jason Samuels again. Hi, it's Allie. Thanks for joining us. Hope everyone enjoyed the first episode. Uh, this time we're going to continue on down the path of surgery residency. We're going to talk about the second year of surgery residency. This year is a lot of centers very clinical based, especially in the ICUs. And I thought that that was a great part of the second year. It combines a lot of critical care experience with some more autonomy and some more, I would say, responsibility inside and out of the operating room. Yeah, second year is probably where I really started to feel like an actual doctor. And maybe that's simplifying it, but there's certainly important points of first year. But suddenly you're really taking ownership of patients. And we'll talk about that with some residents on our class, as well as some of the faculty. We have several interviews in this week's podcast. But that was probably the most important part about second year is really taking ownership of the patients. And thinking about them as a whole person and being able to actually be the person who operates on them take care of them afterwards, whether that be in the ICU or on the floor, and find that magical balance as a mid-level resident between Mm. you're not quite a chief and you don't want to step on your chief's toes, but you feel a certain sense of responsibility for this patient that you operated on and you want to be the one taking care of them. So it's, again, that gradual release of responsibility and going up a little bit in the surgery residency hierarchy. Yeah, I found myself going home after a long shift. You go to sleep, you wake up in the morning and you're post-call or you go on, you check and see how your patients are doing thanks to the power of electronic medical records. So really, you're following that patient every step of the way, which is somewhat different from the first year. Now, Jason, how many critical care rotations did you do second year? So I did five. I did, well, technically four, but I did five months total. I did two in the surgical ICU at our county hospital, Denver Health. I did a month in the surgical trauma ICU at our university hospital, University of Colorado Hospital. And then I also did a month in the burn unit, a month in the CTICU. That equals six, Jason. Okay, well, uh, I was never, uh, math was never my strong suit. Uh, how about you, Allie? Actually, does it equal five? Now I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you ask me the question again? How many months of in the ICU did you do, Allie? I did six months this past year. I did two months of surgical trauma ICU at our university hospital. Uh, I did two months of surgical trauma ICU at our county hospital, Denver Health. I will say that to compare and contrast those two things, there are trauma patients in both. But at Denver Health, we also help manage neurosurgical patients overwhelmingly the ICU is full of trauma patients, whereas at the university, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. You have people who are recovering from complex, could be oncologic operations, transplants, things like that. So different experiences, but both very good experiences. So two months in either of those ICUs, and then a month in our cardiothoracic ICU with people who have just had open heart surgery other different thoracic resections and things like that. Vascular patients also come postoperatively to that ICU. And then a month in our burn ICU, which also includes at times a fair amount of trauma, uh, people who have experienced burns with their trauma as well. I don't think I appreciated the broadness of issues we would be dealing with in the various ICUs we rotate in. Every ICU has its own flavor of problems, but 
whenever you're dealing with sick patients, you're really having to look at all of the organ systems. And I don't think I was quite prepared for that. But by the end of the second year, you really start to feel like if there's a problem, you can at least begin to address it. Definitely. I felt like you get so much experience from taking care of people from a respiratory perspective where you're understanding what a ventilator actually does, what settings on a ventilator actually mean, and how to tweak those for different problems. And from a cardiac perspective, you learn a ton. I definitely did cardioversions when I was in the ICU. I helped treat people with shock of every single etiology that I know about. Uh, I learned a lot about vasopressor drugs. So I just think that all of that information that you really didn't, even if you knew it or some of it, you did not use that your intern year. Your second year, you're taking care of those sick patients. And it's just much different being their doctor. Allie, what was that first call shift like in the ICU for you? Do you remember? So I think I did my first ICU call shift in September of my second year. And we had an ICU that was at least mostly full. So between 15 and 20 ICU patients. And I don't know if you're ever really ready for the experience, but you have backup. I think there was a fellow who was on with me that night. And then you can also always call the attending. And then we have different other mid-level residents or even attendings who are in-house. But being the shepherd of all of those patients was a big deal. And I had a patient who needed to come in emergently and have a central line placed, be started on pressors, go to the operating room. So I was the person to start resuscitating that patient on my first night. What about you? Do you have any good stories? I'm sure I have lots. Nothing really sticks out from those first couple of ICU call shifts that I had. It all kind of becomes a blur at this point, at least for me, uh, where you remember patients don't really remember the order in which you encountered them. But certainly the the dread, maybe dread is not the best word, certainly the... Uh, anticipation. Yeah, anticipations. Uh, With terror. Yeah, <laughs> anticipation of terror. Going to that first call shift was there, but once you start to, you get through round, things are going okay, you realize a couple of problems arise and you talk to your fellows on staff or your attendings even. And by the time it's done, it just flew by and you're kind of amazed. You're like, you got the first one to your bell and from there, it's all kind of downhill. Then you have the real shift where you get slammed the entire shift and you're admitting patients who are sick and you're managing multiple pressers on one patient while another patient's meaning a new central line, things like that. That's the one you always really remember. Some of us are unlucky enough where that's their first ICU shift. That certainly wasn't me. I think that was probably three or four. I'm usually the unlucky one. I'm sure that mine was crazy. Yeah, you've always got the stories for sure. Well, that kind of brings us to what kind of procedures did you learn? How did you learn how to do procedures your second year? Or did you already know? Had you already been taught? So I had try to make it a habit of mine. I did an ICU month as a fourth year medical student. And I tried to make it a habit of mine to go to every procedure where I was present, where I was around for to see. Important if you're a surgical resident or a medical resident, mm -hmm. because you, a big part of your career training, even if you don't become a surgeon, will be in an intensive care setting. Mm -hmm. Keep going. So I felt like 
oh, I've seen a bunch of these. I know what to do. But it's completely different when your hands are on the actual catheters and your hands are on the, the sutures, etc. Uh, suddenly, it's not that easy. And every little detail that you don't notice when you're just watching becomes important, such as patient positioning, such as how you manipulate catheters, things like that, how much pressure. So the way I learn is you have a fellow president attending who's in around as well who are supervising you and they kind of help you through each and every step of the way. You're constantly checking yourself and making sure, is this okay? Is that okay? Probably almost to the annoyance of whoever's assisting you. And you get through it. Now, I'd also read about the procedures. Uh, we'll talk about some good sources to use as a second year. Uh, so I knew what are the possible complications, things like that. I, it wasn't like I was just going in, hey, can someone show me how to do this? And I think that's an important thing is to make sure you try and read up on these things ahead of time. But not necessarily like any specific tips or anything. I just try to educate myself as much as possible before that time came around. What about you, Allie? Mm, I actually was fortunate enough to gain experience as a medical student, both in the burn ICU where I went to school and also at a smaller private hospital where I rotated as a fourth year student and did a bunch of surgical critical care, I guess as much as you can do as a fourth year medical student. But I would say out there to both interns and especially fourth year medical students, this is going to be you in a very short amount of time. And any time, especially towards the end of the year, when you are getting close to your second year and your second year is getting close to the end of their year, get them to teach you because they are ready. They are ready to teach you how to do this and you need to know how to do it. And when you're the person who knows how to hold the ultrasound, see the vessels, identify all of your landmarks, position your patient, people will let you do as much as you feel comfortable with and they will watch you if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, they will teach you first. It is that see one, do one, teach one. But I think that the more facile you are, or comfortable you are, not only with reading how to do this, but also physically putting on your hands on the patient and going through some of the steps, uh, the closer you are to being their critical care doctor. Top five procedures you did second year. Uh, second year, well, I spent two months on the trauma rotation, so I put in a lot of chest tubes. In the ICU? In the ED or the ICU. We did central, or A lines would be second, I think. Maybe even first over chest tubes. And then central lines, most commonly uh, intrajugular, IJ as we call it. I did put a couple femoral lines in. And then I did one ED thoracotomy uh, as a second year when I was on trauma as well. For me, I think my order would be different. I think that I have placed so many central lines at this point in time. Again, I agree with Jason that doing a right IJ is by far and away the most common line that I do. And then femoral over, lines. Over so arterial lines? I don't know. My patients are count. always sick. Yeah, so it could, it could be one of the two. Uh, those usually go hand in hand, though, mm -hmm. especially if you're putting in a central line to titrate vasopressors for your patient uh, for their whatever cause of shock that they are in. So those are one and two for me. And then three, I agree with you. Chest tubes is something that I, I did do quite a few chest tubes my second year, including ones where they were emergent, whether they be in the ICU or the ED. 
It's a very valuable skill. Other things that we do, I think that's specific maybe to Denver Health or the University of Colorado are placing like pain blocks mm. where you place an infusing catheter that instills bupivacaine subcutaneously, which is important for patients who have rib fractures as a non-narcotic pain control. That's something that I learned how to do as well. And then what else? I don't know, the whole other myriad of ICU procedures, whether it be intubations, didn't have a ton of those, but definitely had a few cardioversions. That's something that's important. And I think that that's probably my, my biggest second year ICU type procedures list. We do a lot of bedside tracheostomies as well. That's true. As well as uh, peg placements. That's pretty common in our critical care experience. And I, I probably did five to 10 of those as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that as well. All right. So with that being said, I know that you spoke with our director of our surgical ICU at the university, somebody who's also the head of our GUITS division, which is a fancy acronym, which basically encompasses almost every field of general surgery at the University of Colorado. This is such an excellent mentor, an interesting guy with an interesting story, somebody who manages to balance the delicate nature of endocrine surgery with full-on critical care, Dr. McIntyre. So what did you guys talk about? So we initially talked about kind of his career path, which is somewhat different from a lot of our paths where it's very goal-oriented. I think a lot of us go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to do X surgery almost from the beginning. However, he certainly epitomizes the surgeon who combines both acute care surgery and an elective practice. And in addition to that, does quite a bit with critical care. So if someone's interested in doing elective surgery, but also wants to dabble in trauma surgery and also have critical care experience, Dr. McIntyre is a perfect example on how someone can do that. So we talked about several other things as well. We also talked about what the experience is like as a uh, second-year resident within the ICU, within our surgical trauma ICU specifically. He had some interesting words of wisdom as well as to how someone can be successful in the ICU. And I thought what he had to say was very interesting overall. Love to hear from Dr. McIntyre. So with that, we bring you to his words of wisdom. All right, so we have Dr. McIntyre with us. He is a professor in the GI Trauma and Endocrine Surgery Department. He is the chair of the Trauma Committee. He's also the med medical director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit, or here, the Surgical Trauma Intensive Care Unit, and the director of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. You received your medical doctorate at Tulane, and then I came here and completed your residency, and I believe you've been here ever since. Is that correct? That's right. I did my internship in 1987, <laughs> finished my surgery residency in 1992, and I've been on the faculty mm -hmm. since then. So were there major decision points or uh, experiences that led you down this career path? I originally had applied for pediatric surgery, mm -hmm. but I did so a year later than the usual schedule. I got a job in Baltimore, and I had a year between my senior year and surgery and when I was going to move to Baltimore to do pediatric surgery, the SICU service at University of Colorado Hospital was being started at about that time. The surgical director was Ed Hartford. He said that he could use some help getting the service started. And so in the year between my chief residency in general surgery and when I was going to move to Baltimore, I stayed here 
and did general surgery, but worked in the surgical intensive care unit during that year. During that year, the person that did endocrine surgery announced his retirement. So at the time, Larry Norton, who was the chief of GI tumor and endocrine surgery, approached me and asked if I would be interested in staying in doing endocrine surgery. And that was the change in my career and why I stayed here <laughs> was to assume the endocrine surgery practice. But at that time, I was doing critical care. So that's how I became a surgeon that does endocrine surgery and also the medical director of the SICU. Uh, so you juggle a lot of balls. You have a number of roles, which we've kind of already alluded to. How would you describe a typical day with all of those roles? Well, the, the way that we manage our services at the university hospital is a little bit segmented. Endocrine is a field that lends itself to working in an SICU and doing some trauma acute care surgery because it's very elective and scheduled. So I can personally schedule elective endocrine surgery for a week at a time, and that would be my primary focus during that week. We currently run the intensive care unit with an attending that works in the ICU and is dedicated only to the ICU for a week at a time. So during that week, I don't do any endocrine elective surgery. I only manage the surgical intensive care unit. We also do the same thing in the trauma acute care surgery service at University Hospital. We use a surgeon of the week model. So the people that do the surgeon of the week are not doing elective surgery during that time. They only do the trauma acute care surgery service for that week. And then when they're not the surgeon of the week, they can go back to doing endocrine surgery and scheduling elective cases during those weeks and run their clinics. They do take night call during those times when they're not the surgeon of the week. That's how you can sort of blend these things uh, together. I, I personally think that doing acute care surgery keeps one's skills very broad-based. And with that in mind, it helps you become a better endocrine surgeon. I do a lot of thyroid, parathyroid surgery, but we also do pancreas neuroendocrine surgery and other GI carcinoid tumors and doing acute care surgery keeps one's skills in doing the abdominal endocrine work that needs to be done. And when you were envisioning your career as an academic surgeon, did you envision having these multiple roles? No. <laughs> uh, again, I was going to do pediatric surgery and focus on that. And I got into critical care really because I was interested in it at the time. I had an opportunity to work in the ICU here when the service was first getting started by Dr. Hartford. His partner in that was an individual named Charlie Lawton, who was an anesthesiologist, who was the person that helped start the transplant program's modern program when Dr. Kahn in transplant surgery came. He was a, an intensivist, but also specialized in doing liver transplantation. 
And so it was really just Dr. Lawton and Dr. Hartford at the time, and I became the third spoke, so to to speak, in those days to help get the program started. Endocrine is a, a very interesting um, surgical field, and the opportunity basically fell into my lap, and I I had always liked it. I had always enjoyed the anatomy and the physiology of the endocrine system. So I was just at the right place and the right time to take advantage of an opportunity that was afforded to me. And then as my career developed, uh, it was an interesting way for it to develop with this endocrine practice, but also being able to do critical care. And I think that, as I mentioned, I think that having these different areas of focus blends together quite well because there's a lot of endocrine disease in the intensive care unit that I feel that I have the expertise more so than just the usual intensivist, as an example. Now, this is an intentionally broad, arguably vague question, but what would you recommend? How can someone be successful as a resident in the ICU? Well, I thought you were going to ask me how could one replicate my career, and I was going to <laughs> tell you that that would be impossible. Uh, the down—I mean, the downside of of the way I do it is that since I have a focus in multiple areas, uh, that does dilute the effort a little bit. As far as being successful in the intensive care unit, well, the benefit of critical care training in a general surgery residency is that. All general surgeons are going to have patients that are critically ill. So getting a good training during your residency in critical care is critical for you in your life as a surgeon after training to be able to take care of your own patients. There are multiple different types of practice settings. You have urban, you have tertiary care hospitals, and you have rural critical access hospitals. In If you're in an urban tertiary care setting, uh, you may be in a hospital where there is a critical care service, and you might admit your surgical patients to that ICU, and there might be an intensivist that takes care of your patient while they're in the ICU. But I think it's critical for you to collaborate with that intensivist regarding the surgical disease. The example I would give you is that if you're working with a pulmonary critical care doctor or an anesthesia critical care doctor, they're never going to understand surgical disease like you will. And so your your management of that patient uh, is really critical in really to help them understand the needs that that patient is going to have while they're in the intensive care unit. If you're in a rural setting, the general surgeon often is the intensivist in that setting because you are probably going to have more experience uh, than the other medical staff in those smaller rural hospitals. Uh, Interestingly, in most smaller rural settings, the general surgeon is also really the endoscopist and the gastroenterologist because there is no endoscopist or gastroenterologist in some of those settings. So just like that situation in a smaller rural community, there is no intensivist. 
And the general surgeon may be the person on the medical staff of those hospitals that have the most experience in managing a critically ill patient. And then obviously you're going to have practice settings that are somewhere in between those two extremes. Again, I think that the surgical critical care patient, the surgeon is really the one that is best suited to taking care of that patient. Um, you might, you might uh, need to have a knowledge base not only about the surgical disease, but managing you know, critical diabetic problems or heart failure or respiratory failure. You're the expert in treating abdominal sepsis, not the infectious disease specialist. As I like to say, I don't know any infectious disease specialist that has ever cured someone of abdominal sepsis. I know lots of surgeons who every day cure abdominal sepsis. They are really the infectious disease specialist for surgical disease. Those are just some examples of why I think critical care and surgery is so critical as a part of your residency program. Where would you say that residents should focus their energy when it comes to filling these knowledge gaps so they're uh, an efficient or uh, successful ICU resident? Well, I, I, let, me, let me answer that question this way. Think about the system that we use to evaluate medical students and residents. And the, the framework for that is often that at a junior level, someone is a data gatherer. They're like the hunter-gatherer civilization that goes out and finds out the information, collects all of this, this data, and then they're going to present it to a senior resident or to an attending. That's a very junior-level approach to things. And then, then you should graduate from there into someone who can interpret that data. You take all of the things, the individual data elements that you've gathered, and you need to interpret that and put it into a cohesive picture. The following step to that is learning how to manage the information in order to make a diagnosis and in order to derive a management plan as to how to take care of that patient. Some examples in our own critical care training in our general surgery resident would be that when we get a resident into the intensive care unit at the very beginning of their experience, they gather the history, they examine the patient, they get the lab results, they get the imaging results. And when we round, they present all of that to the, the senior resident, the ICU fellow or the attending. And then they wait for the senior resident or attending to tell them what to do. What does all that information mean and how do you use it to manage the patient? Whereas what we want them to do is to interpret the data, put it into a unifying picture or diagnosis and manage the patient. So I, I think that the ICU experience is one where you need to make the transition from the gatherer to the interpreter to the manager. I, I, I think it's very common for people to get very task or list oriented in the ICU. And in my frame of mind and thinking, I'm looking for a, a big picture. Uh, I recognize a pattern 
that fits together and then manage the patient. So at the junior level, you have this list of things, a list of conditions, and you think about them one on one at a time. Whereas I am thinking in the a much bigger picture, what is the pattern that this patient is following and how do we manage all of these things in a unified way? Now, that was one way of asking the answering the question you asked, which is, you know, how do you <laughs> fill the, the knowledge gap? After listening to what I just said, you can then go back in and fill in where the knowledge gaps are. So you're you're really learning about the pathophysiology of, of critical illness and how to manage all of these things concurrently. You know, it, it, if somebody has respiratory failure, you could think of it as, well, they have a gas exchange problem, they have a mechanical problem, and you know, need to know how to run a ventilator. But in reality, they had respiratory failure because they had perforated diverticulitis, peritonitis, and sepsis. And the only way you're going to manage their respiratory failure is to treat their abdominal sepsis. In the meantime, you support them and their respiratory failure will get better if you manage their sepsis and you support them in the meantime. That's what I really mean by taking it from a task list-oriented approach to a bigger picture and how you manage a patient. So now you can sort of think about the knowledge gaps that you have to fill. And, and that is that, yes, there is a knowledge base, a base of knowledge that you have to have, but in reality, your focus should really be on understanding how how the the physiology of critical illness evolves and how all of the organ systems interact with one another to manage a patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. So one thing as a resident you notice is that there are several different ways to practice uh, critical care as an attending. What is your ideal picture of how rounds go in the ICU when it comes to either presentations or the involvement of multidisciplinary teams, et cetera? Well, the, the follow-up to your question is that the checklists, I think, is an important advancement in how we uh, think about things. Mm-hmm. The downside of the checklist is that you become very task problem-oriented and you never get the big picture. But the, the upside of the checklist is that you know critical illness is a very complex situation. And the checklist helps you to avoid forgetting about something um, that is important and plays into the big picture. You may be familiar with the book, The The Checklist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a very important way to think about critical care. And there's an upside to it, but there's also a downside to that. I think the checklist approach has really helped us manage patients in the ICU that are very complex so that we don't leave out important details that really impact on the the big picture. But over-relying on it, I think, keeps a, a junior level person more focused on each individual task as opposed to putting it into a whole unifying picture of this patient's critical illness. So they're very useful, but they shouldn't be a crutch, is how I would think about that. That makes great sense. Another important part of the experience as a resident in the ICU is uh, involving yourself in procedures. Uh, What are some common procedures you feel are at the resident level 
And what are tips or tricks or ways for residents to become good proceduralists in the ICU or at least begin developing those skills? Well, the list of procedures that are common would include things like airway management, uh, intubation, and even a surgical airway are important skills. Ultrasound is, is important in vascular access, assessing uh, pleural space disease, using it to assess a patient's volume status. It, it goes in with a trauma program, doing fast exams. And then more, not at a resident level, but more at a fellow level, echocardiography might be an important ultrasound skill set. Then we don't use a lot of pulmonary artery catheterization nowadays, but occasionally we might have a patient that actually needs one. And the ICU is going to be one place where you might learn that skill set. Chest tubes and pleural drains in a real advanced program, you might have bedside ultrasound and abscess, percutaneous abscess drainage. Need to know something about Reboa as it relates to the trauma program. I, I wouldn't anticipate a Reboa catheter coming up to the intensive care unit. You should be able to get that out in the OR or the interventional radiology suite, but, but obviously the femoral uh, access points are, are important. We do a lot of bedside procedures like tracheostomies and percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomies. You might do laparotomies to, for decompression. We've done those in our intensive care unit. I've done personally compartment syndrome fasciotomies in the ICU when a patient's too unstable to bring them back to the OR. Uh, so those are those are the procedures that you know first come to to mind. In our ICU, we have a procedure team that involves uh, some critical care nurses that had previously worked in the operating room. Uh, because we have a multidisciplinary program with the anesthesiologists, we're able to do you know bedside sedation and even general anesthesia in the intensive care unit when it's necessary. Thinking about other ICUs that are in our program, in the cardiothoracic ICU, you have mechanical circulatory support with intraaortic balloon pumps. Um, you're not going to put patients on, on VADs uh, in the intensive care unit. They go to the OR for that, but ECMO and ventricular assist devices are critical in the cardiothoracic ICU. In the burn intensive care unit, they have three procedure rooms. They have tub rooms. I've done an exploratory laparotomy in one of those rooms because they have general anesthetic setups there. But obviously, burn, wound care, escharotomies can be done in those procedure rooms that are in the intensive care unit. So those are all the procedural skills sets that I think surgery residents and fellows can obtain during their ICU rotations. How does one best do those? Well, it's to take care of the patients. And when the patients need those procedures because they're indicated, then you do those with the fellows and the attendings that are uh, in the ICU. I have to ask this question, mainly out of curiosity, but how has residency changed since uh, when you were a resident here? Well, you know, when I was a ICU resident, we put a swan gans or pulmonary artery catheter in every patient that came to the ICU. Mm -hmm. We, that was the era where we were doing super normal resuscitation following the shoemaker paradigm of pushing people's cardiac index up to over four and a half and their oxygen delivery and consumption into super normal ranges. 
I have seen a tremendous amount of evolution in the critical care practices in the SICU, primarily because over the last two decades, we now have a lot more evidence-based practices. So as an example, the University of Colorado was one of the 10 original NIHARDS networks uh, hospitals. So we participated in all of the NIHARDS network trials. Lung protective ventilation, of course, was one of those critical, really important studies. But you can think of now in every organ system that the evidence base for how we practice in the intensive care unit has become much more robust over the last two decades. As examples, you know, how do we manage hyperglycemia? You know, when I was a resident, we used to think hyperglycemia was just a stress response and it really didn't mean very much. And only through all of the more recent studies have we learned that it's not just a, an innocent bystander. You know, more recently, delirium. I used to think delirium was something that was temporary. It happened and, and then people recovered from it. We now know that it is associated with an increase in your mortality rate and that there is a significant incidence of cognitive decline that might be permanent related to that. I would say critical care has changed tremendously since when I was a resident. And I've just given you a few examples mm -hmm. of those things. I think it's a great time to practice critical care right now because a lot of what we do currently, we now know through all of the research that has been done in the last couple of decades, uh, we have very good evidence that these things are, are effective and very important. Whereas before, you know, there, the evidence base for how we did critical care when I was a resident was actually not that good. Well, I think that about covers all the topics I was uh, hoping to discuss with you. Any other last words of wisdom or thoughts you'd like to share with current residents or potential surgical residents or even someone who's outside the medical field? Well, as I think about um, your internship year, I see some interns not pay so much attention to the patients in the ICU because in our training program, that's more at a second year level. But when you're an intern, it is your opportunity to uh, learn about critical care as you observe your second year residents managing those patients. And you shouldn't just relegate that to the second year resident and, and take no um, initiative to learn about it. When you're a second year resident, obviously, that's the time when you're going to focus a bit more on critical care. You should... Even if, let's say, you're gonna, you know you want to do general surgery or some subspecialty of general surgery, when you're doing cardiac rotations and learning about cardiac critical care, think you, you're going to learn things that are in the cardiac ICU that will help you when you do general surgery. So you shouldn't think about the cardiac ICU as, well, this is not really important because it's not what I'm interested in. You will learn things that are going to be valuable to you as a general surgeon. And that's true for every rotation. You may not want to be a burn surgeon, but learning about the hypermetabolism of burn injury and the nutrition support and those types of things in the burn ICU is going to help you be a better general surgeon. You also will understand that when you become the senior surgical resident and you have patients in the intensive care unit, you need to help and guide those second year surgery residents in how they learn how to 
take care of your patients, the ones that you operated on as a senior resident. And ultimately, you know, when you go out into practice, depending upon the practice setting you go into, as I discussed earlier, you're going to continue to manage critically ill patients. If I were not a critical care doctor and I was an endocrine surgeon, I'm going to manage pheochromocytomas in the intensive care unit. We're going to have pancreas neuroendocrine tumors that are going to have, you know, complications, unfortunately, of pancreatectomies. They're going to get sepsis from those complications. I'm going to need to learn and know how to manage those patients. So I'm a very strong believer that a very broad knowledge base and experience uh, is important to help you practice, even if you're in a very focused, narrow surgical practice. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for your time, your input. I think we got a lot of great information. Well, sure. It was a pleasure. I'm glad to, to sit down and talk to you. So Jason, did you use any specific resources during your second year, whether that be for critical care in the ICU, operative rotations as well? Uh, so the the it's literally called the ICU book uh, was an excellent resource. Marino, right? Correct. This is what was uh, suggested to me by several other people, and I completely agree. It really cuts down to the most important aspects of ICU care, and you can get way more in detail. This is not going to be explaining to you the intricacies of ECMO. It's going to explain the basic ventilator settings. It does go into some of the more advanced settings, for example. But it's going to get you to the point where you can at least logically talk about the various aspects, for example, of ventilator care. It obviously goes into the other organ systems that are important in critical care management and also goes into things like tube feeding, presser management, procedures like we've already talked about, whether it's central line placement, things like that. It's an excellent resource without going into significant detail. However, I'd also built on that. I love a great review article in a journal. I think Hmm. they're usually more topical than chapters. They can have somewhat of a bias on who the author is, but they typically go into more detail and also include the most recent research. And so I would build on a book like ICU Book and look at review articles, which seem to be pretty popular these days, whether that's from the bigger journals like New England Journal or, or a more specific journal. You know what I think is the best resource for the ICU? What is that? The respiratory therapist. That's true. You guys need to talk to your respiratory therapists, especially when you are fresh at this and have them go through a mini ventilator talk for you. Mm -hmm. I bet you that almost all, especially people who have been with your institution for a long time, people who have been in the critical care setting, like all of your RTs have been for a long time, have kind of a spiel that they'll go through with you, but it is so, so helpful. I remember getting talks from respiratory therapists at both of our ICUs, and those proved to be incredibly helpful. So I think that those are really good resources. Ask, especially if you have APPs in your SICU as well, they kind of know how the preferences are of your ICU and how things run. And they were also good resources, I think. When it comes to operative rotations, I think that there's a little bit more variety. I think that Mastery of Surgery was a good resource that I used because there is honestly an impetus that you know more than you did last year and you are prepared for your case as a second year because you will be allotted your own cases and they will vary in depth and complexity 
and maybe your chief has to go do something one day and you end up uh, in a big case with an attending and you need to be prepared. I remember I had a case as a second year that I thought my chief would be doing and something happened and I ended up doing a liver resection with one of my attendings and thank God I had read about that patient and read about the operation that they needed because it turned into such an awesome learning experience for me. And thanks to my chief for letting me have that. So I think that something else that's different about the second year is the call. And obviously this is a little bit dependent upon your program, but we took no call as interns. We worked during the days and we generally worked one weekend day out of the weekend. And Things change second year. So when you're on an ICU rotation for us, you work between Q4 and Q5 call. And what that actually means can mean different things. Generally speaking, on the weekends, that meant a 24-hour call. And on the weekdays, it meant an afternoon to morning call. So something more of like 16 hours. But it was definitely a change in pace. Kind of a fun change in pace Mm -hmm. with the pre-call and post-call things. But being in the hospital and in charge of the ICU every four nights was definitely a difference. How did you take that in stride? It really starts the day before. I would try and not do anything too exciting the night before 24. I usually meant getting a good night's sleep and maybe some people are better better than myself, I mean, when it comes to being able to have a little more fun the night before. But I would get a good night's sleep knowing that I was going to be working for 24 hours the next day, eating well, being hydrated. That stuff does matter Uh, because it can be a physically demanding experience depending on what you're doing for those 24 hours. If you're on a consult service and you're running around the hospital, uh, you need to have your energy. And then it became just a matter of being as organized as possible during that, taking good notes on your patients, having everything available to you on whatever handout your hospital uses. The more organized you are, the easier it is throughout that process so that the next morning when the team comes in that you need to sign out to, everything's easily available to you to discuss with them. Uh, The ongoing is the last 24 hours. Those are probably the two biggest keys. Because you are the communicator of plans to every other team that you interact with. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the hospital doesn't work on your 24-hour shift, so things may be transitioning as you come on and transitioning as you come off, and you want to make that transition as smooth as possible. And so the more organized you are during that process, the better off those transitions are going to go. Now, Jason, I know that we've been talking a lot and second year might seem a long time away from your research resident brain, but we have some current second year residents that we found and we have some questions for them. Hi guys, welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We've got some excellent second year surgery residents with us. We have Toby and we have Stacy. Both of them have finished or in the the middle or finished three months of rotations so far of their second year? In the middle, two and a half. Two and a half. And both of them have already completed some ICU rotations, which is basically what our podcast is about this episode, which is one of the big transitions, I think, going between intern year into the second year. So just kind of starting out, will you guys tell us a little bit about what your ICU experiences have been just generally this year? Like, what have you done? Well, so I did one month at Denver Health Surgical ICU. It's and at- just to reiterate, Denver Health 
is our big county hospital. Right. Oh, and also a big it's level a trauma, one trauma center. Correct. So it's most of the patients in the SICU are trauma patients. Uh, so we don't see a lot of, so very, which is different from other type of ICUs. What about you, Stacy? I heard you've kind of been around the block in terms of the ICUs recently. Just a little bit. I could still use a lot more experience, though. So I've done the, the CTICU at our university hospital as well as the SICU at our university hospital and then spent a week at the Denver Health ICUs. I think it was a, a really big transition from being an intern to being a second year. And as an intern, you grow up a lot learning how to manage floor issues and kind of sick patients, knowing when they need ICU-level care. But once you're in the ICU, it's a whole new animal and you really need to know how to recognize really sick patients and how to treat them. So I think there was a lot of learning and reading involved and I look forward to more rotations. It's interesting. One of the things that you were talking about, Stacy, in terms of having very high acuity patients and having that be a big change from your intern year, do you guys have any tips or tricks to how to start managing that? Because that is a big transition. You're managing less patients, but it feels like you're managing twice as many sometimes. Definitely. I think definitely reading a lot. The ICU book is definitely very helpful. Toby's shaking his head, too. (laughs) And there's a CT, perioperative, cardiothoracic um, ICU management book as well that's pretty helpful in regards to the CT ICU. And then also something that you don't always think about as an intern is just making sure you always run head to toe. That way you're less likely to miss something. So... You just go through everything, every little issue you can think of, even an electrolyte, like a potassium of 3.3 or 3.4 is important and should be a problem that you address. And what about the call schedule in the ICU? Not bad. I wouldn't say I mean, it's Q, terrible. The Denver, Health, the Denver Health SICU is Q4 at night. And I think coming at yeah. night, it's makes you stronger. And it definitely makes you, for me anyway, I think the hardest part being at night at Denver Health is how to find a balance between people with just a set protocol and figure out if there's any other problems with the patient. So for instance, if a patient's sick, there's always a set protocol of like the nurse to say, this is, we should do this. Rather than, is there any other reason why we should not try something else? Um, I think that's, I've run into that multiple times and I think it's just harder for me to find that balance because it's not always, don't follow apart, like just a set rule. Mm-hmm. And I think the call schedule, even when you say Q4, you're not working 24 hours right, Q4 correct. in our ICUs. You might work a day and then another day shift, but then you're on night after that. Then mm-hmm. you get post-call day and then you get a day. Then you're on call 24 hours. So on call 24 hours, maybe three times in a month, yeah, roughly, wasn't bad. which isn't terrible. So what was your most favorite midnight snack when you were on call in the ICU? I like grilled cheeses a lot. I always, I bought Start up coffee. <laughs> Just much <laughs> the tide. And then, I'm trying to remember what I was. Oh, I would definitely go with the French fries. Or the honey eyes. mustard from the university cafeteria. Mm. No offense to Subway. They clearly don't sponsor this podcast. But <laughs> that being the only thing that's open at midnight right, at Denver Health, I'm less excited that's about true. it. I would, get mid- I would get midnight Subway pretty frequently. <laughs> I agree. And if you go to the cafe here around, what, what do they close at, one or two? Yeah. A lot of times they'll give you their uh, day-olds for free. Oh, nice. Also, pile on the french fries. You may pile on some weight when you're on call that much, too. I'm just saying. Nothing from personal experience. (laughs) All right. Anything else about second year, about our program that we've forgotten to ask you or 
things you want to tell your audience? No, I mean, I just, I like being a second year. Intern year, you grow a lot and you really develop clinical judgment and you become more of a physician. And I think second year is just more so tailoring that now to a more, a sicker population, which is, it's interesting. And getting more autonomy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And they look at, you know, the only person, the only physician at night on a call and then you you just have to make decisions. Very nice. Well, thank you guys for talking to us. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for having us. Thanks. Now, before we close the show, one more brief interview for you guys. Allie met with two of our nurses in the surgical ICU, and they had some great pointers we wanted to pass along. So we're here in the University of Colorado Surgical Trauma ICU, and I've got some of my nurse friends with me. Could you guys talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Um, Hi, my name is Julia. Um, I've worked here for about two years. I went to University of Vermont undergrad. My name's Nora. I've been in the surgical trauma ICU at university for about two years. Previously worked in the burn and trauma ICU at university as well for two years prior to that. I went to a school at the University of Iowa and then moved out to the mountains. Thank you guys for talking to me. I loved working with both of you while I was here as a resident in the ICU. Uh, one thing that you guys listening will notice is that these ladies, I would say, are relatively early on in their nursing careers, similarly to how we are in our doctoring careers. But they have spent all of their nursing careers thus far in an ICU setting. And I think that there's something truly to be learned from them as residents. So one of the questions that I wanted to talk to you guys about, because honestly, as residents in the ICU, you work with the nurses one-on-one constantly. Your doctor-to-patient ratio is less. Their nurse-to-patient ratio is higher, or excuse me, lower than it would be on the floor. But their acuity is so much higher in the ICU. So what do you guys think makes a good resident in an ICU setting? I would say really good close-up communication because, you know, we do only have two patients, sometimes one, and we know everything about them. We are in their room all day long. And when you're the resident working with that patient, we want you to stay updated on everything too. So just communicating back and forth. So we know what the plan is, you know what the plan is, and everybody's on the same page. Because plans can change in the ICU very quickly. (laughs) I think I've experienced that with both of you Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night and in the middle of the day. Very true. I think that communication is huge between residents and nurses and being open to different ideas and then also explaining or checking back in and saying this is kind of where we're headed especially if plans do change at the drop of a hat yeah and I think just responsiveness to those changes too especially Mm -hmm. I feel like it's difficult in the middle of the night when there's one resident on managing an entire ICU full of very sick patients Mm and I think we we try to triage we try to triage and not ask for an emergent colace order at 2 a.m. <laughs> but, but, you know, so if we're bringing it to your attention, we probably think it's important and we hope that you will too. Yeah, exactly. We only bring things to your attention that we deem as valuable to your time and ours, and we're hoping to make a positive change for the patient. What do you think in terms of residents or providers assessing the patient? Is there anything that you wish we did differently? Do you When you communicate with somebody do you generally say, hey, Allie, this is Julia, Mr. So-and-so has done this, and I think you really need to come see him now, 
or this is something I just want to put on your radar? Is that sort of how you usually prioritize these things or you kind of leave it up to the resident to decide the acuity? I think especially in our unit, we kind of self-delegate what the acuity is. Mm -hmm. If it's a lab value, I mean, obviously there are parameters. But I think a lot of times, you know, we're able to effectively express how urgent a situation is um, and definitely use different communication skills to get residents' attention. Yes, I think you say, hey, this acute change happened, the patient's unstable, will you please come to the bedside is very different than hey, let's just circle back on our plans that we made this morning. These are some updates over the last several hours. Do you want to change anything moving forward? Mm -hmm. Kind of just a regroup conversation versus come to the bedside right now. Something Mm -hmm. is rapidly changing. What do you guys think that we could do better? That's an interesting question. I think that all the residents that we've seen come through our unit all have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think being aware of what your weaknesses are and saying, hey, I'm not super comfortable with this or I'm really open to ideas is something that when you bring that to our table and say, hey, I'm working on this or I'm uncomfortable with this, which I know is not super Because for a lot of second year residents, this is their first time being submerged in the ICU experience since maybe they did a rotation as a medical student, they probably did. But that's very different than being the person who's responsible mm-hmm. for these really sick people. What do you think, Nora, if there's something we could change? I don't know. I think kind of what we talk about, what makes a good resident is kind, of, <laughs> kind of the same deal. But I I don't know. I think just we're here to help you, too, and work to you know work together. Just mm-hmm. communicating well with us, teamwork. I mean, what you're new to the ICU, but you have a lot of other really great skills that we can team together and provide good care for the patient. But I think just kind of recognizing how high the acuity is of these patients and subtle changes are a big deal and you need to act on them before they escalate. And if you do a procedure, do not leave the room messy. That's not (laughs) for anyone, whether you're in the ICU or not. Chucks are your friends. (laughs) They are your friends. If you're doing a central line, put a Chucks pad down (laughs) underneath whatever area you're placing the central line. Well, thank you guys for all of your words of wisdom and for all of your help and for taking care of our patients. Thank you. Thanks, Allie. So you guys, we would love to open up our inboxes to you. If you have any questions that you want to have answered by Rocky Mountain Surgery, me and Jason, or any of our fellow residents or attendings that we could pass these on to, please let us know. Our email address is rmspodcast, which is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at outlook.com. Again, rmspodcast at outlook.com. Any questions that you guys have about anything, we have upcoming episodes about different years of the residency, whether that be additional uh, mid-level resident years, whether that be the chief years. But specifically, our next episode will be about applying for surgical residency, what that actually looks like. What should my personal statement be about? How much does my board score matter? What kind of questions are people going to ask me during this interview? Any questions that you guys have for us, please feel free to ask us. Again, rmspodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.